Good morning. Thank you for joining us for worship this morning. My name is Pastor John, and I'm the associate pastor here at East Shore. And today we're going to talk about finishing well. You know, it's very rare for a person to actually finish well. And it's also rare for a group of people or a team to finish well. And maybe sports isn't your thing, but as I was thinking about this idea of finishing well, I did a little research and I discovered something really interesting about sports teams that have the record for the most wins in their sport in the regular season. And what I learned about those teams is that they do not finish well. So let me give you a couple examples. I have before and after pictures on the left and right. The 2015 and 2016 Golden State Warriors basketball team had a record of 73 wins and only nine losses. They charged into the playoffs. They were actually up three games to one in the best of seven championship series, but they ended up losing to the Cleveland Cavaliers. They did not finish well. In hockey, there's two teams, the 1995 and 96 Detroit Red Wings, and just this past year, the 2018-2019 Tampa Bay Lightning, they both have the record with 62 wins in the regular season, but neither team even made it to the championship, to the Stanley Cup Finals. They lost in the playoffs. If we look at baseball, we have to go way back to 1906, the Chicago Cubs. They still hold the record with 116 wins in the regular season, but they lost the World Series to their crosstown rivals, the Chicago White Sox, that year. As for football, there's a team, the 1972 Miami Dolphins. They went undefeated and won the Super Bowl, but the 2007 New England Patriots actually had a better record. The regular season was longer, so they won 16 games in that regular season. And then with two playoff wins, they were 18-0, the best record ever for a football team. But in Super Bowl 42, they lost to the New York Giants. And I found that really interesting. In the four major sports in the United States, the team that has the best record in the regular season did not win the championship. All these teams had great seasons. They're worthy to be praised for such a good job they did during the regular season. What a wonderful achievement. But every time these teams are brought up, we also have to acknowledge that they did not finish well. As great as those teams were, they were not champions. They did not bring home the trophy from their league. They did not finish well. Now, on a much more serious note, it seems that every week in the news or even locally, there's another story about a Christian, particularly a Christian leader, failing to finish well. And it seems like pastors and denominational leaders and even entertainers are being exposed and discredited all the time. And honestly, it's exhausting. It's discouraging and depressing trying to follow all of these stories. When Christian leaders do not finish well, they can't try again next year like a sports team. Their failures have devastating and long-term results. They lose their ministries, and they leave the people that they impacted, they leave them hurt, lost, and confused. Everything they ever said or did is now called into question. Now, when we hear about a leader failing, we're often tempted to try to figure out where exactly did that person go wrong. Because we want to prove to ourselves we would never make those same mistakes. But friends, that is a very dangerous road to travel down. Because the truth is, we're still here and still breathing, and none of us have arrived yet. 
We're still in the fight. The game is still going on. The last chapter of our lives is still to be written. And it's entirely possible that we will not finish well either. So instead of criticizing others, we should each ask ourselves this question, will you, will I finish well? And although he doesn't use those words, that is the question that Joshua is asking the leaders of the Israelites in our passage today. At the end of his life, Joshua gives the Israelite leaders keys to finishing well. So let's take a look at what he said. If you are not already there, please turn your Bibles to the book of Joshua, chapter 23. Joshua in the big 2-3. If you want to use that red Bible that's in the seat back in front of you, it's on page 129. 129. So once you're there, Joshua 23, I'd ask you to please stand to honor the reading of God's Word, and then follow along. I will read our passage for today, Joshua 23, big 23, and then I'm going to read that whole chapter, the verses in it. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Joshua 23, starting in verse 1. A long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years, Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and heads, its judges and officers, And he said to them, I am now old and well advanced in years, and you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake, for it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Behold, I have allotted, I've given you an inheritance for your tribes, those nations that remain, along with all the nations that I have already cut off from the Jordan to the great sea in the west. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight. You shall possess the land just as the Lord your God promised you. Verse 6, he says, Therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you, or make mention of their names of their gods, or swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them. But you shall cling to the Lord your God, just as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations, and as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you just as he promised you. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you, if you make marriages with them, so you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. They shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes, until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. Verse 14, And now I am about to go the way of all the earth, and you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. But 
just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things till he has destroyed you from off this good land that the Lord your God has given you. If you transgress, if you break the covenant, the agreement of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, if you go and serve other gods and bow down to them, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he has given to you. Let's pray. Lord, this is a heavy subject this morning, but an important one. Because of its importance, we need you now, God. We need your presence with us. I pray that we won't be focused on our concerns or people talking or distractions, but that we will see you. To borrow words from your servant, John the Baptist, I pray, God, that in this moment you would increase, that I would decrease, that everything else would decrease before you. Lord, help us to finish well. To do that, remind us of what you have done for us. Remind us, Lord, of what you are going to do for us. Remind us of the things that you have called us to do. And Lord, bring to our minds what you could do. In all things, lead us to trust in you and in your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Let's talk about where we are in Scripture. So we are now in the book of Joshua, the book of Joshua. It's a book about God fulfilling his promises to his people. He is giving his people, he's chosen a land of their own. He used a man named Moses to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt. And in this book, it's about a man named Joshua guiding the Israelites into the promised land. God led Joshua and the Israelites to victory in many battles. And after all the major armies of the Canaanites are defeated, the land finally had rest from war. The Israelites had clung to God and they'd stayed united to one another and they were safe and settled in the promised land. But now we're in chapter 23 and it's years later, the people have been resting in the land. It's probably about 25 years after they first crossed the Jordan River at this point. And even though the Israelites were victorious in the war, they're still in a very vulnerable position. But it wasn't the Canaanites that made them vulnerable. No, it was their spiritual condition. It was their pride. Because having won the war, the Israelites would have been tempted to let down their guard. In the words of Proverbs 16, verse 18, pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit, a proud spirit, before stumbling or before a fall. After a great big battle, a big struggle in our lives, it's tempting to relax to be less disciplined. We step back, we take our foot off the gas, we slow down. And there's nothing wrong with resting. There's nothing wrong with enjoying a season or a time of peace. But we have to be aware that in many ways, a time of peace is actually more dangerous than a time of struggle. Because it's at this time of peace that we are more susceptible to sin and failure. And Joshua knew that his people would be tempted to be lazy, that they would have their guard down. And he knew that his time on earth was running out. So he chooses this moment to speak. He knew that the Israelite leaders needed a reminder of some keys to finishing well. We're told that he summoned all of Israel, but particularly the leaders to come 
and to hear him. And most of this chapter is Joshua's speech. He's preparing the next generation of Israel's leaders for what is to come. And it's very similar to a charge that God gave to Joshua. We talked about it months ago, back in chapter 1. It's like how God spoke to Joshua then, Joshua's speaking to the leaders of the people. Now, if we go through this, we just read it, it's kind of hard to break it down into even sections that are about different things. Joshua kind of weaves what he's saying in between the different verses. But as we read through, there were at least three kind of themes that emerged, and these themes or what I'm calling Joshua's three keys to finishing well. And the first key that Joshua gives in this address is to remember what God has done and what he will do. Remember what God has done and what he will do. Multiple times in this speech, Joshua reminds the Israelites of what God has done and what he is doing on their behalf. Most importantly, he emphasizes that God fought for Israel. The Israelites did not win the conquest of the promised land. God won. He brings this up uh, two times at least. Verse 3 at the end, he says, you've seen all that the Lord your God has done to these nations for your sake, for it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. And then in verse 10, he talks about how one man shall put to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you. And we've seen this throughout our study of this book. If you remember a while ago, we talked about in chapter 10 that God supernaturally extended a day so that the Israelites could have more victory over their enemies. Joshua asked if the day could be longer, and God made the day longer so they could win. In chapter 10, verse 14, we read this, There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man. And why did he do this? For the Lord fought for Israel. He changed the natural order to bring victory to his people. And then later in that chapter, we read this. Joshua captured all these kings and all their land at one time because he was such a great general. No, because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. In our text, uh, Joshua goes back to this in verses 9 and 10. He talks about how the Lord drove out these great, strong, and powerful nations out of the promised land. No enemy could withstand or defeat God's people. Even one Israelite soldier would put to flight and chase thousands of enemies. And this wasn't because the Israelites were the world's best soldiers. It was because they had the one true God on their side. He fought for them. He promised to bring them the victory, and he did. A few weeks ago, we talked about Joshua 21, and verse 44 references this kind of victory as well. It says, the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their ancestors. Not one of their enemies withstood them, for the Lord gave all their enemies into their hands. And every Israelite that Joshua spoke to was a witness to God's work on their behalf. They had seen God's miraculous work to give them this promised land. Later in this chapter, chapter 23, there's a lot of warnings about what could happen. But even in them, Joshua is still reminding the people. He does it three times. He reminds them that God gave them the land. At the very end of verse 13, he talks about the good ground that the Lord your God has given you. Verse 15 ends with the good land that the Lord your God has given you. And verse 16 
the good land that he has given you. Every Israelite should remember that God fought for them and gave them a land of their own. But Joshua is not just telling them to remember what God has done in the past, because God's people should also remember to look forward to what God is going to do. In verse 4, Joshua reminds them about how they've been allotted divisions of the promised land. They've been given land to settle in. They have an inheritance. They have a homeland because their enemies have been cut off. They've been conquered from the Jordan River in the east to the great or the Mediterranean Sea in the west. But God's not done yet. Because in verse 5, Joshua reminds them that God will continue to push back their enemies. He will continue to drive them out of their sight. And this is consistent with what God had already told the Israelites. In the book of Exodus 23, God says this, I'm not going to drive them out before you in one year, because if I do that, the land will become desolate. Wild beasts will multiply against you. Instead, little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possess the land. Joshua and the Israelites had won the major victories, but God was still giving them full possession of the land, little by little. In order to finish well, Joshua wanted the Israelites to remember what God had done for them and remember what he would do in the future. He would continue to give them the land. Verse 14 that we read before the offering is a summary of this idea. Joshua's old, he's about to die, but he and every Israelite know deep in their hearts and souls that God was faithful. Not one word of God's promises had failed. Every promise that God made had come true. It had been fulfilled. And this verse is very similar to one that we talked about, uh, Joshua 21, 45. It's really kind of the theme verse of the whole book. Not one word. Of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Joshua wanted his people to remember what God had done and what he would do. The Lord had been faithful to his word. He had fought for his people. He had given them the promised land. And he would continue to be faithful to his word. He would continue to fight for them. He would continue to give them the promised land. That's why remembering what God has done and what he will do is the first and most important key to finishing well. Because if we forget God's works on our behalf, then we will fail. If you're not a Christian today, you can try to go through life on your own, in your own strength, by your own effort. And it may work for you for a season, but eventually your strength and your health will fail. And who will you turn to then? Who will you rely on? So while you have life and health, I beg you to seek the God who created you and who loves you. Learn about him. Learn about his son that he sent to die for your rebellion against him. Turn from your sin and embrace faith and trust in the only one who can restore your relationship with God. Only He can fill your life with eternal meaning, eternal value, and eternal significance. 
Now, if you're here and you're a true Christian, well, then you owe every facet of your existence to God. He created you and he saved you. And you cannot forget that. By remembering what God has done for us, that is how we find the motivation to finish well. We live for God not because we have to. No, we live for God because we are so grateful for what he has done for us. But believers in Jesus also know what God is going to do for us. Because when our lives are over, God will bring us home to be with him. If we know God through Jesus Christ, then we can have confidence in our eternal home. And someday when Christ returns to earth to reign and rule, he will make all wrongs right. If we remember what's coming for us, then we will make decisions today based on that reality rather than doing what we want in the moment. If we have an eye on eternity, that changes what we decide to do in the present. The more we remember what God has done and what he will do, the less we will choose to sin, the less we will choose to be selfish. And that is why remembering what God has done and what he will do is key to finishing our lives well. But what are we doing? If we're remembering what God's doing, what are we supposed to do in that moment? Well, the second theme that Joshua tells the Israelites and us is to remember what we are to do. Remember what we are to do. Just because God has been faithful to us in the past, that does not give us the freedom to do whatever we want. There's several verses in this chapter that kind of bring out four things that God's people are to be strong, careful, firm, and courageous to do for their Lord. The first of these we see in verse 6. Joshua tells the Israelites to keep or to obey, to follow, to keep and to do all that is written in God's law. Therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left. Joshua tells the leaders to stay in the confines of Scripture, to do what God's law says. Now, at this time, the only scriptures they had were the books that came before. They only had the law, the first five books of the Bible. But still, at the end of his life, Joshua wants his people to commit to doing what the law says. It's God's word, and it should be obeyed. God himself told Joshua how important this was. At the very beginning of his time as Israel's leader, God says this to Joshua, only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. Now, these Israelites, they had God's law to obey. We today, we're blessed to have this whole Bible. It's full of teaching of what God desires for our lives. But you should know, that choosing to obey God, that's often not easy. It takes strength of our spirit and strength of our character. It is much easier, it's much more convenient to choose to sin, to choose to do what we want to do. And we're born with a desire to rebel against God. Choosing to obey God, that is a radical action that takes strength and courage. We'll be tempted to turn aside We'll be tempted to bend the Bible's commands to suit our desires, what we think is best. 
And a similar warning to Joshua's here pops up at the very last book of the Bible, in the book of Revelation. The author says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, well, then God will add to him the plagues described in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of this book of prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life, in the holy city, which are described in this book. We do not get to decide which parts of the Bible we're going to read and obey and which parts we're going to ignore. Now, there are some commands in the Old Testament in particular, laws that have been fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. But you know, the Bible itself tells us what those are and tells us how to apply them in our lives today. Our calling is to keep and to do what God's Word says. Obeying God like this requires daily discipline. We have to discipline ourselves to know Him, to spend time with Him every day. We must train ourselves to do what He says the first time. Well, the second thing Joshua says that we are to remember to do is to separate from sin. Separate from sin. He brings us out in verse 7. He tells the Israelites that they're not to mix with or associate with or go among the Canaanite nations that remained in the promised land. Later in verse 12, he'll be a bit more specific. He's explaining that he means don't intermarry with them. The Israelites were told this back in the law. Deuteronomy 7 says, you shall not intermarry with the people who are in the land. You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. If you do this, they will turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. The problem here is not that they were marrying someone from a different people group, because the Bible is not against interracial marriage at all. The problem is marrying someone who does not worship the same God. Because if two people do not share the same religious commitments, the one who is not worshiping the one true God will almost always lead their partner away with them. So if you're here, you're interested in getting married someday, that is why it is so important for Christians to marry other Christians, others who have the same commitment to God. Because otherwise, the Christian spouse's faith is usually slowly eroded. This verse tells us what it looks like. The end of verse 7 gives us kind of four downhill steps of worshiping a false god. First, it says the god is mentioned. Verse 7 says that you might not mix with those nations remaining or make mention of the names of their god. This god is acknowledged and its name is praised. Second, we put trust and confidence in this false god. We swear to it. It then says, make mention of their names of their god or swear by them. Third, we serve this idol. We advance its cause rather than doing what the Lord said. And finally, we bow down. We worship this false god outright. Now, we're going to talk a bit more about idolatry and worship of false gods. We're going to talk about that next week. But for now, I want us to note that we're not talking about idols that are made from wood or from stone or from precious metals. We're not just talking about that. Because we, as human beings, we can make any person any place, anything, even any idea, an idol. The Protestant reformer John Calvin said this, God is defrauded. He is robbed of his honor. Whenever any particle, however small, of all the things which he claims for himself, whenever any particle 
of honor is transferred to idols. If we praise anything other than God for what's happening in our life, his honor is defrauded and robbed. Anything we put over the true God or make more important than him, that is our idol. And so we finish well by separating ourselves from those idols. Verse 8 tells us the third thing we are to remember to do. Joshua tells his people to cling to the Lord your God. Cling to the Lord. Every day, God's people are to hold fast. They're to hold tightly to God. That means they show faith. They show loyalty and devotion to their Lord. That phrase, cling to, or maybe your translation is hold fast, that's actually the same word that God uses to talk about his intention for the relationship between a husband and wife. Back in the book of Genesis, chapter 2, He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast, cling to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. If a husband is holding fast to, if he's clinging to his wife, he will not be drawn away by another lover. And so the closer we cling to God, the less influence temptation will have over us, the less likely we will be to reject God. I kind of got the, almost the image of like a baby monkey on its mother's back or a koala bear clinging to its mom. We should remember to devote our energy to being as close to God, as dependent on him as we can be. In verse 11 is the fourth thing. Joshua says that the Israelites should remember to love the Lord their God. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. Because if we're not loving God first and foremost, well, then it's going to be impossible to live for him. Now, when I'm talking about love, I'm not talking about a feeling of butterflies or or mushy romantic feelings. There was a Bible scholar talking about this passage, Joseph Colson. He said this, this kind of love talking about here, it's a function of will and intention, something we're choosing to do. Emotion, attraction, these are the results and not the essence of love. What he's saying is that we finish well by choosing to love God every day. Choosing to love God, that produces the good feelings. That makes our relationship with him attractive. And we have to get that order right. We don't fall in love with God and then decide to love him and obey him. Every day we make the commitment to love God. Emotions, warmth, it flows from that commitment like keeping and doing God's word, this is a discipline too. It's hard to love someone if you're not spending time with that person. So having time with God, being in his presence, building our relationship with him, that is vital to loving God and to finishing well. So here, Joshua is saying we finish well by remembering to keep and to do God's word, by being separate from sin, separating ourselves from sin, by clinging to God, and by loving God. And these four instructions are very similar to some words that Moses spoke back in Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 22 and 23. He says, if you carefully keep all these commandments, which I have commanded you to do, to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, that's kind of meaning being separate from other ways, and to hold fast to him, then the Lord will drive out all these nations before you, you will dispossess greater and mightier nations than yourself. 
So Joshua's words, they're really just an extension of this command that Moses gave in the law. And Joshua repeated these same things throughout his life. Just the last time I spoke, we were in Joshua 22, and look what he says to the two and a half tribes that are about to go back home across the river. He tells them, be very careful to observe the commandment, to do, to keep the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, be separate from other ways, and to keep his commandments and to cling to him, to serve him and not others with all your heart and with all your soul. Again, those same four ideas are present in this verse as well. To finish well, we need to do all four. However, if we're going to finish well, then we also have to remember what God could do. What God could do. The verses we haven't talked about yet in chapter 23, they're a warning of what may come. In verse 8, Joshua told the leaders to cling to God. But then in verse 12, they're told what will happen if they cling to the Canaanites and to their false gods. If they turn away from their relationship with the Lord, if they turn back from clinging to Him, if they join with the remaining survivors of the Canaanites, then they will experience God's judgment. If they intermarry with the Canaanites, if they associate with them and their false religion, then they can be sure that God will not drive their enemies out of the land. By compromising with sinful people, the Israelites would not receive all of the promised land. Instead, Joshua says the Canaanites will become snares and traps for them. Their presence in the land would make their life difficult. They'd be painful and full of suffering all of their days. And this would continue until God's people eventually perished and vanished from the land God had given them. Before the Israelites even made it to the promised land, God had warned the people. He said, they shall not dwell in your land, these people who are there, lest they make you sin against me. For if, they, if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you, just like Joshua said. That picture is kind of silly. It's like advertising that false god here. Come, worship this one. Turning away from God and partnering with those who sin will always bring misery. And this warning is just intensified in the last two verses of the chapter, 15 and 16. Joshua says that just as all the good things that God had promised had been fulfilled, just as all these good things had happened, will all the disastrously evil and harmful things that he promised would come on his disobedient people. If the Israelites transgressed, if they violated, if they broke their covenant, their special agreement with God, then his anger would kindle and burn against them. They would perish and vanish from the promised land. We're not going to look at it today, but there's long passages in the Old Testament law that talk about this. Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28, there are extensive lists of the blessings or the cursings that God would bring on his people based on their behavior, how they responded to him. If they obeyed him, they would be blessed. But if they disobeyed, they would be cursed. And God works like this throughout the Bible. You might be familiar with an old hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Great is Thy Faithfulness. But when we sing a song like that, or we say something like, God is faithful, 
what we usually mean is, God is faithful. He's been blessing me this week. But do you know where that phrase, great is thy faithfulness, do you know where that's found in the Bible? It's a quote from Lamentations, Lamentations 3.23. If you don't know, Lamentations is a whole book about mourning. It's lamenting how God has judged his people. It's not really a book about God's blessings. It's about suffering under God's judgment. So God was faithful. Great was his faithfulness in Lamentations, but he was faithful both to bless and to curse. And unfortunately, if we kept reading after Joshua into the book of Judges, we'll find that Joshua's words came to pass. The Israelites did not finish well. Within two generations of Joshua's death, they began to turn away from God. It got so bad that God said this in Judges, just Judges chapter 2. He says, so now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. That is exactly what Joshua said would happen in this text. Instead of driving out the Canaanites, the Israelites absorbed them into their territory and they started worshiping their gods. And God was faithful to his word. The Israelites had issues with the Canaanites in their land for hundreds of years. And eventually, God would remove his people from the land. He would send them away into exile. They lost the promised land because they did not finish well. But let's not spend too much time criticizing them. Because if we're honest, the same is often true for us today. In our sinful flesh, our sinful desires, we often long to disobey God. We want to worship anything and everything except Him. We find it much easier to do what we want than to remember what God has done for us and do what He desires. And when we choose to disobey God, there will be consequences. Now, of course, what those consequences look like is a little different today. You're probably not going to be forced out of your country into exile, but you will experience loss by choosing to disobey God. If you're someone who only claims to know God, you not actually have a relationship with him, you just say you will, well, then let me warn you, God will bring eternal judgment to your afterlife. If you're only pretending to know God because you think, well, that's what my family wants, or you think it's the right thing to do, your disguise will be exposed, either on this side of eternity or the next. And what waits on the other side is hell and eternal separation from God. And this is not a joking matter. I beg you to know God. Let His Spirit change you, change your desires, or else openly reject Him do what you want. You cannot have it both ways. You can't just come here and think that you're good for the rest of the week and the rest of your life, because false faith is no faith at all. Now, if you do know God, you do have a relationship with him, every day of your life is after seeking him, well, then know if you choose to pursue sin, that will lead to his discipline in your life, and you will lose whatever it takes for God to get that sin out of your life. If there's a sin that you regularly struggle with, if there's something that makes you fall, I urge you, get help now before it is too late and you lose everything that you care about. 
if you are a genuine Christian, God loves you too much to let you continue in sin. He will bring discipline to those who do not finish well. In life, it's very easy to begin well. Anyone can start to do something for a short period of time. But the question is, will you finish well? Or will you fail too? Let me just say, the reason why I'm sharing this with you today is because I love you and I care about you. And I am tired. I am truly, truly tired of seeing believers in Christ fail to finish well. I am tired of seeing sin destroy ministries and lives. And the only way that problem is fixed is if we heed Joshua's words in our text today. And I don't want to have to think about any of you someday and have to remind myself, oh yeah, he didn't finish well. She failed. And I don't want any of you to have to think about me that way. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is serious. In order to move forward together, we have to pray for one another to finish well. We need to beg God to help our brothers and sisters, members of this church, finish well because we cannot do it alone. We need the support and encouragement of our church family if we're going to have any hope at all of finishing well. If you're here, you do not have a local church to be a part of. I would urge you to find one that will pray for you and support you throughout your life, support your efforts to live for the Lord. As for me, I know I am truly grateful for my church family that prays for me and encourages me to finish well because I desperately need it. As we support one another, we should remember Joshua's words from this chapter. First, we should remember what God has done for us, remember what he will do for us. Second, we must remember what we are to do. And finally, we should keep, well, as we remember what we're going to do, we keep and do God's word. We separate ourselves from sin. We cling to God and we love the Lord. And finally, we're to remember the discipline that God will bring to our lives if we fail to finish well. And I know that that can be a scary thought, but it should not drive us to despair. We should not end on this down thought, because the great benefit of being a genuine Christian is that we have a relationship with the one true God. We have peace with him because we know his son, Jesus Christ. The truth is that it's very hard to finish well. In fact, it is humanly impossible to do it. But, but, Jesus, our Lord and Savior, he finished well on our behalf. And his spirit with us gives us the ability to finish well, too. Even when we fail, he remains with us. In the words of 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. And that's why if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, seek one out today. Please talk to me or talk to some one else you know is a Christian, about how you can know Jesus Christ. Turn away from your sin and have a relationship with him. But if you do know Christ, well then finish well, my friends. Remember what he has done and what he will do. Remember what he calls you to do. Remember what God could do, and in light of that, cling tightly to him every day until he brings you home to be with him. Because on that day, 
you will not struggle with sin anymore. And on that day, we will all praise him for who he is and for what he does, because he alone is worthy.